Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you today and to have this privilege and opportunity to open up God's word together with you. Uh, I want to ask you to join me again briefly for another brief word of prayer before we look at God's word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. Lord, we cannot understand your word. We cannot draw from your word the lessons that we ought apart from the work of your spirit and the spirit of Christ within us. So we pray that you would be pleased to pour out your spirit today, to give us understanding, to save, to give new hearts, to renew minds, and to cause us to put off the old and to put on the new. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39. If you're using the Bible that we provided, you'll find the passage on page 33. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible of your own, we want to invite you to take the copy that we have provided in the seats around you as a gift from us to you. There's nothing that we would want more than for you to have a copy of God's Word for yourself. Uh, I want to encourage you to uh, open to the passage so that you can follow along when I read it in a few moments. I'm going to read the whole chapter for us, and I want to also encourage you to keep the Bible open in front of you throughout our time this morning because we'll be looking at the passage often in our time, trying to understand what it has to teach us today. Uh, We're in the home stretch now of the book of Genesis. Uh, These final 14 chapters of Genesis show how God's promised salvation is coming to fruition through Jacob's sons, mainly Joseph and Judah. Uh, Two weeks ago, we started the Joseph saga by looking at Genesis chapter 37, and we saw how he was his father's beloved son. He was a righteous and royal good shepherd to whom God had revealed in dreams that he would one day rise to become a ruler to whom even his own family would bow down. His brothers, however, had plans to foil his dreams. Out of their hatred for him, they throw Joseph into a pit, then they sell him to slave traders before returning home to lie to their father Jacob about Jacob's where about Joseph's whereabouts. Jacob concludes that Joseph has been killed by a wild animal. But as the chapter ends, we learn that Joseph has been sold into slavery in Egypt. It's a a massive cliffhanger, really. The reader's left wondering what will become of Joseph, but then the focus shifts in Genesis 38 to one of Joseph's brothers, Judah. There we learn the surprising reality that God's promised salvation isn't going to come through righteous Joseph, but sinful Judah. And having established that reality, Moses now transitions back to Egypt, back to Joseph, back to the terrible circumstances that Joseph finds himself in, And through the events of this chapter, we are reminded again of an astounding truth, a truth that should humble those of us who are prospering today and comfort and encourage those of us who are experiencing adversity. What is that truth? Well, I want you to go ahead and turn with me to the text where we'll find out. I'm going to read the passage for us now. I want you to follow along. This is... God's word. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, 
And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was, in the, was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw it, that, she had left, that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us, came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. If you're taking notes, the main lesson for us today from Genesis 39 is that God is with his people and is able to cause us to prosper in the midst of adversity. God is with his people and is able to cause us to prosper in the midst of adversity. And what I'm gonna do with the rest of our time is we're just gonna walk through the passage. I'm gonna explain it as I go. Then we're gonna consider how this passage is fulfilled in Jesus and the good news of the gospel. And then we're gonna consider a few applications from this chapter for our lives this coming week. So let's go ahead and walk through the text together. I want you to take a look with me at verses one to six. Moses tells us again, just like he did at the end of chapter 37, that Joseph was brought down to Egypt and sold by the Ishmaelites to a man named Potiphar, who was both an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. What that means is Joseph ends up a slave to a very prominent person. But far more important to Moses than who purchased Joseph was who was with Joseph in these terrible circumstances. Look at me at verse two. The Lord was with Joseph. Now, this may not jump off the page at us, but the word Lord here is the covenant name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. That name is used eight times in this chapter, and it is used nowhere else in the Joseph narratives, not apart from Jacob using his name once in his blessing of his sons. Nowhere else in the narrative of Joseph do we hear about Yahweh being with Joseph. Moses wants us to know that the Lord, the one who created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and 2, the Lord who called forth the flood in Genesis 6, the Lord who called Abraham Abram out of Ur in Genesis 12, that same Lord, the covenant God of Israel, was with Joseph in Egypt. Regardless of how terrible his circumstances were, and make no mistake, they were terrible, he was sold as a slave in Egypt. Regardless of how hopeless things may have seemed, 
regardless of whether Joseph recognized it or not, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the one who shows steadfast love to his people, was with Joseph. And as a result, he prospered. Look again at verse two. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. This is repeated again in verse three. Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. God's presence and hand of blessing was manifestly on Joseph. Unsurprisingly, Joseph finds favor from Potiphar. He eventually rises to the rank of overseer of Potiphar's house and all of Potiphar's other slaves. So he's in charge of it all. The man is just killing the game. Potiphar sees how he's killing the game and how everything he does seems to work out well. And he's like, I want you in charge of everything. Joseph is in charge of everything. And not only did Joseph prosper, but Potiphar prospered too. Twice in verse five, we're told that the Lord blessed Potiphar because of Joseph. We just need to pause. Think back to what we've already learned in Genesis. We're seeing here a real-time fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. God promised that he would bless those who bless you and that, that through Abraham's offspring, blessing would come to the nations. And here, in very obvious ways, God is blessing Potiphar because Potiphar is blessing Joseph and God's promised blessing for the nations is coming to fruition through Joseph to Potiphar's house in Egypt. But that prosperity doesn't last. We're also told in the second half of verse six that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Joseph was a looker, right? My man was the total package. Brains, dude knew what he was doing in the house, and brawn, dude could get it done, right? Like his mom, Rachel, who went before him, same description was used of Rachel. She was attractive in form and appearance. Lo and behold, She has given birth to a son who grows up and is attractive, handsome in form and appearance. And as a result, Potiphar's wife wants him. Look at verse seven. She tells him, lie with me. The English, even though it is short, curt, right? It doesn't really convey the brusque manner of her request as well as the Hebrew. It's just two short commands. She is barking orders at her slave. Lie with me. But Joseph isn't having it, right? In response to her curt command, he delivers an impassioned refusal. In verses eight and nine, you can look there. Essentially, he says, there's no way I could do this to Potiphar. Not given all the responsibilities entrusted to me. Not only that, there's no way I can do this before God because that would be wicked. What you are requesting me to do is a sinful thing. But his impassioned refusal to sin against God doesn't slow her down, right? She, she doesn't stop. Look at verse 10. She spoke this way to him day after day, but he wouldn't listen to her. And notice how Moses puts it. He wouldn't listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Moses wants us to know that Potiphar's wife was savvy. She saw that she wasn't getting anywhere with telling Joseph just to sleep with her, so she started saying things like, come, sit next to me. Be near me. Let's just have a, a conversation. Come sit on the couch with me. Come lie with me. We don't have to do anything. Just be near me. But Joseph wasn't having it. So she takes it up a notch. Look at verse 11 and following. One day after pleading with Joseph day after day, she decides to force herself on him. She waits until none of the other men of the house are around. These are likely servants who are working in the house. Then she forcefully grabs him by his cloak and tells him again to sleep with her. But Joseph, instead of giving in to her, famously flees. He, he runs, but she has so forcefully grabbed onto him that his cloak either comes off if it opened in the front or rips off, leaving the garment in her hand. And because he has scorned her and rejected her advances, she lies and frames him. She cries out to the men of the house, tells them that Joseph tried to force himself on her and she holds up his garment as proof. Then after she tells him that, she holds on to his garment, 
waits until Potiphar comes home since he's the captain of the guard. It's possible he had, was out on duty for long periods of time. He comes home. She tells him the same story. Look at verse 17. Notice how she subtly digs at Potiphar trying to manipulate his anger. The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. She's referring there to Joseph trying to make a mockery of her by forcing himself on her. That's the lie that she is telling. I want to pause here. I've got more application to come later, but there is an application or an insight, an observation that I want to draw that just didn't really fit with what comes later, but I think it's important for us to consider. I want to pause here to briefly connect what's going on here to our current cultural moment and just point out how the Bible, all parts of the Bible, can help us think well about things going on in our culture and cultural issues we're facing. So over the past few years, uh, things, uh, through things like the Me Too movement, there's been a lot of light shed on how prevalent sexual abuse is in certain industries, and a lot of people have been held accountable for their crimes. And because of that movement, and they've been held accountable because of the Me Too movement, and they otherwise wouldn't have. And that is a good thing. It is good when crimes like that are brought out into the light. And we should all praise that and pray that God would do more of that in our world. But with every good movement, there always seems to be attached to it strains of bad thinking that comes out of it. One of those uh, strains of bad thinking that you might recall that came out of the Me Too movement long, not long after it was the Believe Women movement. Now listen, even that movement had good reasons for starting, right? It started because women who had experienced uh, and suffered sexual abuse weren't being believed when they told their stories and shared what happened to them. And we should, as a church, Christians should in general, want to take every allegation of abuse seriously and look into it seriously. We are people who desire to know the truth and who should pursue justice. And so every allegation of abuse we should take seriously and pursue to find out what honestly happened in this situation. The problem was that the Believe Women movement turned from pushing for taking women's allegations of abuse seriously into you need to believe women when they level allegations of abuse without question. So whoever they are charging with abuse is guilty and then we need to find them innocent rather than they are innocent until proven, proven guilty. Now, how should we as Christians think about that? How should we think about that kind of thinking? Well, we should consider what the Bible says, right? The Bible teaches that both men and women are capable of sin. Men are capable of committing sins like sexual abuse and the sad reality is women are capable of lying about it, like we see happening here. It's not to say they're always lying about it or that men are always committing sexual abuse, right? We just, need to re we, we just need to deal honestly with what the Bible says about both men and women. And because of that, we should never believe any group of people just because they belong to a particular group of people. We should instead take any allegations that arise seriously and allow the evidence to lead us to the truth. If you have questions about that, I want to invite you to come and find me after the service. I'd love to talk with you more about it. I'm going to hit unpause now on that current cultural moment, think piece connection that we see in the text, and we're going to get back to the passage. And what we find, unsurprisingly, is that her lie works, right? Potiphar, unsurprisingly, responds in anger. The only real surprise is that he doesn't put Joseph to death, right? A foreign slave trying to force himself on a high official's wife was absolutely grounds for death. But Potiphar doesn't do that. So it may be that Potiphar realizes how much he's been blessed because of Joseph, or it may be that he has reason to suspect his wife, that she isn't telling the whole truth. We just don't know. What we do know, verse 20, if you look there with me, is that Joseph is thrown into prison. He's gone from the pit in Genesis 37 to Potiphar's penthouse and back to the pit in prison. But more important than where he's been is who has been with him 
every step of the way. Look at verse 21. Joseph was in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And as a result, just like Potiphar, the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of everything because he could see that the Lord was with Joseph and made everything that Joseph did succeed. This is a powerful and memorable story. One of the most well-known stories in all of scripture and for good reason. But I think what's often overlooked in this chapter is the main point of the story. Often this chapter is preached as a lesson on fleeing temptation, right? Running from sin, fighting against sin, daring to be like Joseph. And while those are all important lessons that we will consider, they are ultimately secondary to the primary lesson of the chapter, which is that God was with Joseph. And it was God's presence with Joseph that caused him to prosper even in the midst of adversity. You see this even from the way that Moses has structured the passage, right? The account of Joseph fleeing from sin is sandwiched in between two clear declarations that God was with Joseph and caused him to prosper in the midst of adversity, right? Joseph was in the midst of adversity after being sold into slavery in Egypt, yet God caused him to prosper in Potiphar's house by blessing everything that he did. He's then framed by Potiphar's wife, after which he's thrown into prison where we find God was still with Joseph and caused him to prosper again in the midst of adversity. Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, is with his people and causes them to prosper even in adverse circumstances. And you can see how important this lesson would have been for the people of Israel as they later experienced the adversity of being slaves in Egypt. Why is it so important that Moses uses the name Yahweh here in this particular chapter and nowhere else in the Joseph narratives? I want you to think to Exodus 3, which will come later. God sends Moses to tell the people of Israel that he's going to come to be with them and deliver them out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses says, they're going to ask your name. They're going to ask who you are. They're going to ask what your name is as a God. When they do, what should I tell them? And God says, tell them, Yahweh has sent me to you. The same Yahweh who was with Joseph and caused him to prosper even in the midst of adversity was coming to Israel's aid. And that was to be a huge encouragement to them, right? They were to see that if Yahweh was able to bless Joseph and cause him to prosper in the midst of adversity, then he could do the same for them, surely. Certainly he could. And do the same for them. He did, right? If we are familiar with the rest of the Old Testament and how it plays out, God was with them as he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And even as he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, he caused them to prosper. They came out with great wealth. He was then present with them as they traveled through the wilderness where in spite of their disobedience, he caused them to prosper, blessing them with manna from heaven and water from a rock. He was present with them and brought them into the promised land of Canaan, where he blessed them in the midst of adversity by going before them and driving the nations out before them and then giving them the the prosperous and abundant land of Canaan, a land that we hear repeatedly was flowing with milk and honey. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, we find the people of Israel facing adversity, and then in the midst of that adversity, experience the presence of God with them to lead them through adversity, who then caused them to prosper in spite of their adversity, over and over and over again. Yet even though they experienced abundant blessing from God who caused them to prosper in all that they did, I mean, just think about Think about the, how they prospered materially. You think of the descriptions of the building of the temple. Like every nation around them was like, y'all are loaded with wealth. Like 
the biggest cedars being cut down to go build the temple, the finest stones being cut to lay the foundation of the temple, gold covering everything. Like it was just God's manifold, manifest blessing on the nation of Israel. He caused them to prosper. He caused them to succeed. Yet even though they experienced abundant blessing from God who caused them to prosper in all they did, they did not respond like Joseph by holding fast to walking in God's ways. In their prosperity, they became proud and greedy. They forgot their need for God. They, they turned their back on God and began to worship false gods. They gave themselves over to sin and to the worship of false gods until eventually God cut them off from his presence by casting them out of the promised land and sending them into exile. Yet, as the nation of Israel experienced the adversity of exile, God promised throughout the Old Testament, even while they were in exile, even before they went into exile, he promised his personal presence would come again. Not in a pillar of cloud by day, nor of fire by night, not in the veiled off holy of holies that, that no common Israelite could experience in the tabernacle or temple. This time, God's presence would come clothed in human flesh. Right, if you're familiar with the, the church calendar, you would know that today is the first Sunday of Advent, the season when the church celebrates the coming of Jesus Christ, whom Isaiah predicted in the Old Testament would be named Emmanuel, which means, which means God with us, God's presence with us. The Father's sending the Son into the world is the clearest expression of his intention to be personally present with his people and to cause them to prosper in the midst of all adversity. And we see how Joseph is a signpost to Jesus in Genesis 39. We see how him and his experience in Genesis 39 points us forward clearly to Jesus. Just as God was with Joseph, so much more was God with Jesus. Luke tells us in chapter two of his gospel that the child Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. You even hear echoes of the, the blessing and prosperity that Joseph experienced with God's hand upon him. Jo Jesus experienced it that much more. Or, or at the beginning of his ministry, when he was baptized, what? The Spirit of God descended on him, showing the Father's love of him, his approval of him, but also displaying the Father's presence with him. Just as Joseph experienced God's blessings on his efforts, so Jesus experienced great blessing on his efforts. He prospered in all that he did. He opened the eyes of the blind. He caused the lame to walk. He opened the ears of the deaf. He, he loosened the tongues of those who could not speak. He, he multiplied a single loaf of bread into food for thousands of people. God's blessing, God's prosperity in his hands multiplied for all to see. God was with him and caused him to prosper in all that he did. The man calmed storms with a word. And just as Joseph righteously fled temptation, yet we know Joseph was a sinner like us. He is a picture of righteousness here. So Jesus was perfectly righteous, never sinning once in his entire life. Not even when he was tempted by Satan himself. And just as Joseph was framed and punished by being thrown into prison, so Jesus was framed all the more and lied about. But rather than being thrown into prison, he was nailed to a cross. Yet even in his death, God was with him and showed that he was with him by raising him from the dead. And after raising him from the dead, the risen Jesus appeared to his people and he promised what? Lo, I am with you. The same blessing and presence of God that was upon me and my ability to carry and God's ability to carry me through every storm is now upon you as my spirit is with you. Lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Not to the end of the day or to the end of the hour or to the end of the minute. 
or to the end of the afternoon or to the end of the evening. My spirit is with you to the end of the age. I am with you and can cause you to prosper in the midst of adversity. Through the presence of the Holy Spirit of God, friends, God is with us. And Paul says as much, we, we are individually the temple of the living God. God is with us. He has filled us with his spirit. And he's able to cause us to prosper even in the midst of adversity. And so we want to think about how this chapter should shape how we live this week. Right? There are three applications that I want to draw from the text, all revolving around the idea that God is with us. First, we need to remember that God is with us in seasons of prosperity. We need to remember that whatever prosperity we're experiencing, and by prosperity, what I mean is kind of favor and evident success. It doesn't have to refer to one specific thing. It's just you're doing really well, whether material prosperity, physical prosperity, professional prosperity, spiritual prosperity, whatever prosperity we're experiencing is ultimately and finally a gift from God who is with us. Now do not hear me say that whatever prosperity you're, you're experiencing is only a gift from God and has nothing to do with you or what you do during the day or during the week, right? Or the effort you're putting in, right? Joseph was clearly working hard for Potiphar. It's not as though he was just laying around, not doing anything, and just like God somehow heaped blessing upon him while he was lazy, right? Joseph worked hard for Potiphar, Potiphar, showed up on time, stayed late, studied his craft, was clearly diligent in all the various tasks that accompanied his particular work. The success, though, that he experienced didn't happen in spite of him being lazy and not showing up to work on time. He was faithful, but Moses could not be clearer at the beginning of the chapter and at the end of the chapter. The Lord caused all that Joseph did to succeed. Joseph worked hard. The Lord caused him to succeed. And we need to remember this because of how prone we are. I'm assuming you are because I am myself, right? Because of how prone we are to think the success we're experiencing in different areas of life is only because of us, because of our wisdom, our skill, our intellect, our parenting style has produced these kids. Our personality has, has won us all these friends. Our holiness is why we are doing so well. And listen, that temptation to think that our success is only because of us isn't a new one. And it's one that God really desires to dispel from us. Right, think about this, in Deuteronomy chapter eight, when God's people were about to enter the promised land, God warned them not to forget that the abundance that they would experience within the land came from him and not from them. He said to them, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. And if you forget the Lord your God, you shall surely perish. Friends, how, how are you viewing the success you may be experiencing in life? Are you experiencing professional success? Do you have a job that you enjoy and one that you're experiencing lots of wins in, lots of victory, you're just stacking them up? Is your income a blessing to your family? Have you been able to purchase the home that you love because of your work? Are you experiencing physical prosperity? Are you healthy? Is your body free from disease? Do you not really experience the chronic issues that others experience? Are you, are you able to exercise and eat healthy foods and afford supplements to care for your body? Are you experiencing success in your parenting? Do you have kids that seem to stay out of trouble? They obey instructions and broadly speaking, make, make life easy on you. Are you experiencing spiritual prosperity? Have you seen victory over sins that other people seem to still struggle with? Do you find joy in opening the word when other people find it dry? 
Are you experiencing God's power and favor as you pray to him where other people describe it as perhaps more of like a walk through the wilderness? Right? We could come up with lots of questions to explore the various ways you might be experiencing success or prosperity in life. And as we experience those things, we cannot forget that ultimately whatever success we experience ultimately comes from God. While we're called to be excellent, as excellent as we can with the different gifts and limitations God has placed on us, our success in any endeavor isn't ultimately because of us, but because of God's choice to give us success. Often when we look at the ways we're experiencing success, we we immediately look to the things that we've done that have led to our success, and inevitably there will be things that we have done that have played a part. But if we spent more time considering our successes, I think we would find as many reasons to wonder why we're succeeding and others aren't. Right? Leah counsels teenage girls, and as we were talking about this passage, she brought up how often she is amazed by how well certain kids that she counsels are doing and how poorly other kids are doing and how it doesn't seem to be at all connected to their parents. There are certain kids who are thriving in spite of really difficult home lives, and there are others who are doing really poor in spite of an amazing home life. The same thing comes up in conversations with Jack and Knox when we watch football. They, they want to know what, what makes certain players amazing at football and others not so much. And it's like, well, this guy, Tom Brady, he, he worked really hard. He, he does work really hard. And he's also gotten really lucky that he hasn't gotten injured. Like, there are other dudes who are really skilled at playing quarterback who, like, their, their career got wrecked after their first game because they got injured and you can never come back from it. There are just so many circumstances that lead to success and blessing in life that it's just like, yeah, there's hard work. And there's a whole area of God's sovereignty that just is ordering and aligning these things that are leading ultimately to the success that we experience. And if we looked at our successes, we'd see the same. There are reasons we can point to as to why we are experiencing success, but there are also a whole host of factors outside of our control that God may have sovereignly chosen to bless in a peculiar way in this season of your life. So in any way that you're experiencing prosperity, the bottom line for you and me is to give thanks to God and to remember that it's because he is with you and is giving you success for now. And I say for now, because we also see in the passage that we'll also experience seasons of adversity. And in that adversity, we need to remember that God is with us. Notice the first type of adversity that Joseph experiences. He experiences the adversity of temptation. The fact that God is with us does not mean we will not experience temptation or very profound and persistent temptation at that. God is clearly with Joseph, and yet Joseph also experiences persistent and profound temptation to sin. And notice what we learn about these temptations to sin. We learn that sometimes they are blunt, blatant, right in your face, right? Potiphar's wife bluntly says, lie with me. But we also see that temptations to sin are more subtle and coded, and are meant to slowly chip away at our desire to obey God. You notice after he refuses outright, Potiphar's wife shifts to a more subtle move of just getting Joseph to just come sit, just come be near. She thinks that if perhaps she can get him within range, then she can start breaking down his defenses. She'll have more success in seducing him. And the lesson we learn from Joseph is that God's presence in our lives should propel us to holiness when we face temptations to sin. Very straightforward, right? The Spirit of God has not only freed us from the condemnation of sin, but from the power of sin, such that we now have the power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Right? Think of the connection that Paul later makes in, between God's presence and our holiness in 1 Corinthians, when he tells the Corinthians that because they are God's temple, God is with them, that they should not engage in sinful sexual immorality. 
And if there is anything that this chapter commends, it is the goodness of fleeing from temptation and saying no to sin. Because God is with us, empowering us to flee from that temptation and to pursue the holiness that he calls us to. Friends, how are you doing saying no to sin? How are you doing fleeing from temptation? Even the the subtle temptations that that Satan is using to draw you to a a bigger and perhaps larger sin. Make no mistake, Satan wants it all. He's not coming for just part of your life. He wants you dead in hell with him forever. His subtle chipping away isn't just to get you to stumble a little bit, but to bring you to hell with him. So we need to flee sin. We need to pursue holiness. How are you doing fleeing from sexual sin? How are you doing fleeing from anger and impatience? How are you doing fleeing from gossip and slander? From envy and greed? From bitterness and wrath? Think about the call on the church. Be holy as I am holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now we have the new morning mercies and God's promise of forgiveness if we turn to him in repentance when we do stumble in sin, but the call to holiness is there and we need to pursue it as well. God intends for us to live according to his good and life-giving laws and to respond to temptations to sin the way that Joseph does. And I want you to notice what Joseph does that can help you in your battles against sin. One of the main things that he does is he keeps a wide berth from temptation, right? Even though Potiphar's wife shifts her strategy just to get him to sit with her and to be near, Joseph isn't having any of it. He's not even gonna go near her because of how that will lead him to potentially sin. Do you approach temptation the same way? If you struggle with drinking too much, do you avoid buying the six-pack altogether or going to the bar altogether? Or do you think, oh, I could, I'll, I'll just have a few, right? It, it's not, it's not ex- explicitly sin to drink. I, I know it's drunkenness. I know sin is, it, it, it's sin if I, if I get drunk, but like I can have a few, but, but I know myself and I struggle with just having a few. Do, do you avoid buying it altogether and going to the bar altogether? Or you just, I'll, I'll try again. I'll, I'll see if I can get near to it and actually not sin. Or do you think, uh, do you still visit sites that have links to the places you know you shouldn't go? Right, if you struggle with watching things online that you know you shouldn't watch, do you still visit those sites that have those links right there? Or do you think, oh, I'll be able to stay, stay away from, from clicking on the link this time? Besides, I, I've had a hard week. I've had a hard week at work and I deserve some relief. Right, do you sinfully justify giving into temptation and sinning? But right? if anyone could have justified sinning, it's Joseph, right? I mean, he's her slave after all. He could have just said, she's in charge of me. She told me what to do. I'm, I'm just obeying her. It's not my fault. But he said, no, this is wickedness. He doesn't rationalize what God has clearly called sin. Do you find yourself rationalizing, justifying, finding a way to, to get this loophole that maybe you can partake of the, the sin? Friends, we need to adopt the same mindset as Joseph. Jesus has empowered us with his spirit to do so. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son. We've been given God's spirit. He is with us and his presence should propel us to holiness. And kids, Joseph is an example for you too. Especially the younger kids. I want you to imagine this with me. I want you to imagine with me, kids, and I'm gonna ask you to shout something out here in just a moment, so be ready. I want you to imagine with me that you're playing in your backyard. I don't have a backyard. Just imagine you have a backyard. You're playing in your backyard, playing whatever you want, and as you're playing, you notice a giant anaconda. Yes, I know we're in Maryland, and those don't live around here, but a giant anaconda anaconda is slithering into your yard and coming towards you. What would you do? That's it? Knox is the only one who's gonna shout it out? What What would you do? Run! You would run from the anaconda. It is coming to get you, right? Temptations to sin 
are like that slithering serpent. And when you see them, kids, you should run from them. Even at your young age, you're going to be faced with temptations, right? Temptations to disobey your parents or fight with your siblings or lie about doing something you've done wrong. When you're faced with those temptations, you should run from sin and run towards righteousness. This lesson is important for the teens as well. You're at the age where you're going to be faced with greater temptations than you have been faced with in years past. How are you doing preparing yourself to respond when that temptation comes? You may face these temptations when you're in a group of friends and that pressure to sin is really high. It's really hard to turn away from peer pressure. We can look at Joseph and say like, yes, I'm gonna do that. When you're in this situation, ask mom and dad. It's hard. It's hard. We are not as strong as we like to think that we are and it's really easy to stumble and fall. I want you to think ahead of time though. How can you be prepared in those situations to respond like Joseph does? Right? Maybe it looks like talking with your parents about what those situations are gonna be in your life and maybe presently are and coming up with ways to have them help you get out of it. Let's say you come up with a code word for your parents that when you're with a group of friends and the next time there's some sort of sin that you know you're gonna be tempted to engage in, you can text your parents that code word, they will call you and they will come swoop in to help pick you up. And you can just tell your friends, hey, my mom, mom, mom and dad just called me, gotta go, sorry. Or maybe it just looks like fleeing if you don't have that type of situation set up with your parents. Maybe it looks like you just actually standing up and saying, no, I'm not good with this. This is wrong, I'm leaving. And listen, we have to, we have to reckon with what the Bible teaches. God does not promise that things will go well for you in the sense that like everything's gonna work out if you just do that. What happens to Joseph? He's thrown in prison. You can look at his life and say, it doesn't seem like God is with him, right? If you stand up for righteousness, you may face consequences from the world in that sense. Same is true for all the adults. If you're being tempted to sin in the workplace, at home, online, there, there may be consequences for you choosing righteousness. But the encouragement for you from God's word is that choosing righteousness is always the best decision. God is with you, and he's able to cause you to prosper even in the midst of adversity you might experience as a result of choosing righteousness. And that's the last thing that we see in the passage. God sovereignly ordains adversity. God sovereignly ordains trials. And yet in the midst of those trials, God is with us. He's able to cause us to prosper in the midst of them. What do you think about this? This is the paradigmatic story in the Bible of God's sovereignty and of how God can bring good out of evil, right? The Joseph narrative, just, that's where you go if you want to talk about God's sovereignty. If God wanted Joseph to rise to Pharaoh's right hand in Egypt without him experiencing any of it, he could have certainly done it. Without Joseph being thrown into the pit, or cast into prison, he could have done it. But God sovereignly ordained adversity in Joseph's life in order to display the power of his presence and his ability to cause his people to prosper even as they face adversity. He ordains and allows trials as part of his plan for our lives. And when, God, when people say to you, God has a wonderful plan for your life, know that that may include suffering. In the end, it will be wonderful, and in the end, it will work out for your good, but his plan for your life may include adversity in ways that are really difficult. We're gonna move really quickly through this story. You read the chapters one after the other, you don't realize Joseph spends like 13 years as a slave or a prisoner. I think it's Psalm 105 that will later look back on Joseph and say, Joseph was kept in shackles and chains around his neck, his wrist, and his feet. This was terrible, and yet, God was with him, and God did prosper him in the midst of adversity. The great encouragement for us when we are facing difficult circumstances is that we are not alone. What are you facing right now that's difficult? 
is it too big for you? The answer might be yes. You need to recognize that there are no circumstances, no adversity, no trials, no suffering that are too big for God. God is able to carry us through and even cause us to prosper in the midst of suffering and in the midst of adversity. It's, it's often in suffering and in adversity, adversity that we prosper more spiritually than we do when we're just doing really well. Right? It's during those times that we are keenly aware of our dependence on the Lord in ways that we just, just aren't in times of abundance. When you're at your lowest point, you experience God's power and presence in a way that you don't when everything is just going swimmingly. You think of kids, think of like gold. If I'm going to refine gold and purify it from all of the impurities that are just naturally in it, what do I have to do? I have to burn it. I have to get it really hot to the point where it's melting and I can purify all of the impurities from it. God will at times cause us to sit on the shelf and things are just going okay where, where the heat isn't all that turned up and then there are times where he takes us off the shelf and he puts us right into the fire. But what we need to remember is the, the truth that is taught here with Joseph, taught later with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Who's in the fire? God is with us in the fire. In the midst of adversity, God is there with you. God is able to prosper you. He is able to take your weakness and turn it to strength. And he does it in order to confound the wisdom of the world. To display that as much adversity as we might face from without or within, God is able to bless us and keep us and make his face shine upon us. So friends, if you are struggling with sin, fleeing from temptation, you've just been, I'm trying to do this, but I'm just struggling. If you're in the midst of adverse circumstances, trials and suffering, the encouragement for you today from the passage, God is with you. Even as you struggle with sin, God is with you. As the glory departed the temple in the Old Testament, the glory will not depart you, his temple, because he has signed you and sealed you with the blood of his son. Jesus has given you his promise, lo, I am with you to the end of the age. God is with us, and he's able to cause us to prosper even as we stumble in sin. He's, even to take, he's sovereign enough to be able to take our struggles with sin and turn them for our good and cause us to prosper in spite of ourselves. And he's with us in the midst of trials. He's with us in the midst of adversity, and he will ultimately cause us to prosper in the end. When after we face the adversity of death, the spirit of God who is with us that caused Jesus to rise from the dead will likewise give life to our mortal bodies. And what was once mortal will be raised immortal. And we will enter into God's presence where we will prosper forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, impress this truth upon our hearts that you are with us. We give you thanks for any and all prosperity and success and favor we are experiencing in life. And we pray for deeper trust, comfort, and pursuit of holiness as we, as we continue to face temptations and trials that afflict us and buffet us. Bless us and keep us. We pray that you would send the Lord Jesus to come to us again soon. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.